a great friend over the last number of years. He's um, very um, closely aligned with um, us in, in terms of church and church life here in um, Lurgan and Portadown. And uh, as, as you know, we have uh, the, the, the growing kind of family of families, network of churches called Tabar. Um, David uh, sits on that and has found a degree of home in that. He's ministered all around the country for many years. But, you know, over the last number of years, it's been great just to feel like an affinity of heart and spirit for the purposes of God in his church in Ireland. And so it's great to have David serving alongside us in that and inputting into those different churches, carrying the DNA of what we feel the Holy Spirit's doing at the moment. So, David, it's great to have you here. We welcome you and our hearts are open to what you want to share. Why don't you stretch your hands out, would you, to David? He's going to continue our series on Spirit Breakout this morning, and um, I know it's going to be great. So, God, we just thank you for David. Thank you, Father, for what, all, what you've done in his life over the years. Thank you for the journey that he's been on. And thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that's been gained. But, Lord, we thank you for the hunger, for the fresh thing in his heart, Lord. And so we just ask, as he shares today, that you give him help now by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I have this switched on. Is it working all right? We're working. You can hear me? Yeah, yeah. Good morning. It's really great to be here. Thanks, Al, for, for that lovely welcome. And uh, to share with you today is very special. Um, considering, as he's already said, the week that we're in, in the church calendar, if you follow that or don't, um, it's quite significant. Um, where we are at as, as a movement and what God is doing at the moment, just to pause and, and focus on that. Um, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, I know you've been there over the last while. And Al has asked me to continue uh, a little bit in the series and also um, share a little bit my own journey in regards to things of the Spirit. Now, before I do that, I always forget this. My prayer letters are at the back. If you want to know anything more about what we're doing, prayer letters are at the back. You can order those via email if you want to get them regularly. They come out three times a year just telling you a bit about what we're doing. Also, I forgot to ask, can I make a wee plug for Pour Down House of Prayer? Pour Down House of Prayer meets on a Friday from uh, 7 in the morning through to 6 in, uh, in the evening, 11-hour cycle. We've been doing that for five years now. We're above Chimes Coffee Shop, if you know where that is, just beside St. Mark's Church. Um, and we'd love to see as many of you could pop in. Some of you do come, and we do appreciate that. Um, so we're wanting to pray as much as possible for the community here. Um, the book of Acts, you've got to love it, don't you? Uh, because it embodies the reality of what happens when God gets hold of people. But a great error that there is with regards to the book of Acts is just seeing it as history. Now, Luke was an exemplary historian. We know that. And this is, by the way, not really one book. It's really uh, two books making up one, two volumes, Luke Acts. And so they, they came as one, essentially, two parts. And we know what Luke is all about. But we tend to look at Acts purely as history, or it has been uh, in, in, in the church, often looked at in such a way. But I want you to consider that the Gospels are not history. Each Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're depicting the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, but each of them do it from a different angle or a different aspect. And so, I'm not going into it all, but you know, John presents Jesus as the Savior of the world. Luke uh, talks about a lot of the 
humanity of Jesus is his emphasis and so on. And so they're all talking about the same figure, many of the same events, but they're doing it from a different slant because they have an agenda. And it's a Holy Spirit agenda. There's nothing wrong with that. But they're being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I know it's a bad analogy, really, but if we were to go out of church today and see an accident, and maybe four of us witnessed the same accident, depending on where we were on the road and what direction we were coming, we would have different aspects of that event. And in the same respect, so did the gospel writers. But this is, this is my point. Acts of the Apostles is what I, I like to call theological narrative. Now, don't let that term spook you. What it really means is a narrative is a story, but this is more than a story. And it's more than just an historic uh, account of events that took place. It is theological narrative, which means just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to teach us something about Jesus, the ministry of the gospel in the kingdom, so Luke, in his book, is wanting to do more than just tell us what happened in the early church. He's wanting to tell us this is the way the early church is and is meant to be and can be in our day and generation. This is what the church is all about. And throughout the stories, there is something being taught to us. So when you're reading Acts, I want you to think about that. What is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to teach me here? And to that end, this is all about now. It's all about what God wants to do when he pours out his spirit upon people. This is what he wants to happen. I believe Acts is normative Christianity. It's the way things are meant to be in the kingdom of God. And for that reason, I've scribbled at the end of my Acts the Apostles to be continued. This is meant to be happening today. Now, that was a, a great challenge to me as a Christian because I didn't really believe... Um, the gifts of the Spirit, for instance, were for today. I did I was a strange mixture because I, I, the door was always ajar of my mind and heart because I had been weaned as a young person on revival literature, so I'd read about what God had done in the past, and I knew that God's Holy Spirit could come in great power and do dramatic things, but there was part of my mind and my heart was closed off. And yet there was a hunger there to see God really, really move. And Acts is the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about in, in John 14, 15, and 16, where he said, I am going away, but I'm going to send another to you of the same kind, the comforter, the encourager, the, the strengthener. Parakletos is the word. He'll come alongside and lift you up. He's like a kind of divine blood transfusion to give you what you need. Now imagine if you were one of the disciples and Jesus has come as the Messiah, and he's talking about all this stuff of salvation and deliverance and so on. Then he tells you he's disappearing. And then he says it's, it's necessary. In fact, it's to your advantage that I go away. And you're thinking, how on earth could that be to my advantage? I mean, when I was a kid, I used to think, wouldn't it be wonderful to get into a time machine and just go back to the times of Jesus and see the miracles and hear his teaching, etc. But actually, Scripture says, no. It's better to be here and now post-Pentecost, post-Acts of the Apostles, it's better to be in the kingdom today than actually to know Christ physically in bodily form and be around his earthly ministry. Now just let that sink in for a moment, because I'm not sure you actually believe that. Do you believe that? I'm not sure. Jesus said in, in John 14, verse 13, Truly I say to you, 
that the works, if you believe in me, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these because I go to my Father. Now, that's incredible. You can do all the somersaults you like to try and explain away that verse, but it means what it says, and it is actually anchored in the reality of what we're celebrating today, which is the ascension of Jesus. Because I go to my Father, because Jesus has died He's risen, and he's now in the presence of the Father, glorified. He can now pour out the Holy Spirit. That's what he said in John chapter 7. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John comments on that. This is what he spoke concerning the Spirit, who was not yet given to those who believe in him, because Christ was not yet glorified. And so there's this connection between Jesus going to heaven, and, and it was read to us by Al from Ephesians 4, that when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And the picture is of a general coming back from battle, extending the empire and the kingdom of the, the Caesar, or whoever was in charge, and coming back with prisoners in his train, but also the spoils of battle that he shares with his people. That's what Jesus did when he ascended. Ten days later, after ascension, Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out. I want you to look here at verse 32 of Acts chapter 2. And I know you've spent a lot of time probably around Pentecost already in Acts 2. But I just love this verse. And it's hidden there in, in Peter's um, sermon and often missed. Verse 32, Acts 2. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. Wow, I had goosebumps when I read that. What you now see and hear is the promise of the Father. Now, you've got to be hearing and seeing stuff for the promise to be fulfilled. That's what Acts is all about. And actually, when you're reading through Acts, and indeed the Gospels, particularly Acts, look for the times it's mentioned seeing and hearing, because this is all about testimony to who Jesus really is. If you look at verse 22 of the same chapter, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. That the supernatural dimension of the Holy Spirit's empowerment is the attestation of the ministry of Jesus and the word of the gospel. Right? So we know it's true because the power of God comes and backs it up. Now, it is true because it's true. But there's something about the supernatural that demonstrates. There's a demonstrative example of the fact that God is here and now. It's not about a historic story. It's about what God is doing. But it's more than even attestation. It's not just to prove the gospel is true. It actually in itself is a part of the gospel message to actually say to people, God is good. There is good news because God does good stuff for people. He touches and he heals people. He delivers them. He transforms communities and families, etc. Because God is good. It's part of the message. I was, I was um, 
exercising yesterday, which doesn't happen an awful lot, but sometimes God really starts to ferment things in my, my mind when I'm doing that. And I was thinking about how I stand to the Lord. The Holy Spirit's power and ministry is really like fertilizer to the seed of the Word of God. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, no, that's wrong, because what their fertilizer is and all that, that couldn't be right. And I'm sort of saying, Lord, you know, and, and then he, I felt that he said to me, no, think of biology. And just as the sperm fertilizes the seed, it's, it's as if the Holy Spirit comes with the seed of the word, the seed of the kingdom that's being sown. And he is the one who comes, just like in the, the womb of the virgin. The seed was fertilized. I know it was the father um, brought Jesus, the unbegotten son, into the world. But it was the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and upon that egg and fertilized. And that is the power that, that we are meant to be operating in as we establish God's kingdom here and now under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah? One sows, another waters, but God gives the increase. Now, my story, very quickly, I'll not go into all the details. I was born again very early in life as a child, grew up in a Christian home, and uh, always felt the call of God upon my life. But as I said earlier, I always knew there was something more than just salvation. I always knew that there were people in history that experienced these great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. So I had a hunger very early for that. But the kind of context in which I was in had a ceiling on it regarding those things. But about, I'd say about 12 or 13 years ago, there were three revelations that transformed my life and ministry. One was the grace of God. Um, now, it's by grace we're saved, so we, I had to know something about that. But what I'm talking about is actually living in the grace of God. Um, his unconditional, unmerited favor and empowerment in our lives. But it was really this aspect that if I truly know that I have a, not a performance-based relationship with God vertically, but I'm living in grace, well, then I'll have a grace relationship with other people horizontally. But the circles I was in, there was a performance-based relationship with other people. So you had to measure up to my standard for me to accept you. Um, but I saw that that was coming from a lack of understanding about grace. They were trying to perform to get God to accept them. So that's the way they behave towards everyone else. And so grace really set me free. And then the father heart of God was the, the other thing. Because anytime I read father in the Bible, I just read God. I didn't read Father, I just read God. And, and these are all connected, really, I suppose. But when I started to get a revelation that he was my Abba Father, my Papa, my, my Daddy in heaven, and I could have that adoptive relationship with him, that was just mind-blowing. And then sort of wedded to those two revelations was the understanding of the work and ministry and person of the Holy Spirit. But because of my background, I was very mind-driven doctrinally driven. And I'm not saying this has to happen for, for, for everybody, because it doesn't. Sometimes God just whacks people and that's the end of it. Um, but for me, there was something had to go on up here. I suppose you could call it repentance, a change of mind. And so I was, I'll not go into all the details, but I had a, a time out, a bit of burnout for three months. And during that time, God started taking me part to put me back together. And I started to question, not the gospel or fundamentals of the faith, but certain received wisdom that I'd been given, the tradition of the elders, if you like. I'm a pastor at this stage. 
And God really started to reveal to me from Scripture that on the contrary, rather than saying that these things died out with the apostles or had been replaced by the finished canon of Scripture, actually, on the contrary, these giftings, these abilities and demonstrations are absolutely essential and necessary for the task of expanding the kingdom across the world. We can't do without them. And I'll not go into all the the scriptures we have in time, but but just to give you a a smattering of some of them, 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Spirit. Don't don't put out the fire of the Spirit is literally what it means. Don't despise prophecies. In the circles I was in, they despised prophecies. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talking about tongues and prophecy, tells them to pursue these gifts. And even says it's part and shot on the gift of tongues was not it's of the devil, which is often what I was hearing, but rather do not forbid to speak in tongues. He even said, I speak in it more than you lot, and the Corinthians were crazy about it. And so these kind of scriptures were opening my mind to the fact that actually the Bible that I revered and that many lifted up as the final authority, which it is, is the book that talks about this stuff and actually encourages us to walk and to move in it. And if you still Acts 2 open, and verse 39 was also very significant for me, for it says there, this is on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit has been poured out, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. And that doesn't just mean geographically, I think it means in time, as many as the Lord our God will call. So that's open-ended, if ever any verse was, to tell us this is for the succeeding generations. This is for the rest of human history. And sometimes a scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, that great love passage, is often used to say that these, these gifts and empowerments ended when the Bible came into being. Um, it talks about uh, prophecies will fail, tongues will cease, and knowledge will pass away until that which is perfect is come. And I was taught that that which is perfect is Scripture. But in fact, when you actually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the answer is in the book. When Paul says, I, I desire that you will come behind in no gift of knowledge or ability, power, knowledge and revelation and any spoken gift, until Jesus comes. You look at it. It's verse 4 through 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. My desire is that you'll come behind a new gift until Jesus comes again. He's the perfect one. That which is perfect has come. So my mind was starting to be blown. All the old theologies and restraints and um, all these inhibitions around the, the understanding that I could be legitimate and authentic in my understanding of the Bible and yet be open to these things. This was the start. And when you think of it, why on earth would God deprive us from what we need to finish the task of go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? It doesn't even make sense. The thing's only getting started and then he takes away from us what we need. But anyway, I could go on for long enough on that. But I had the theological shift. And it wasn't until I left the pastorate, which was 11 years ago last month, that the experiences started. And actually in this town, and I might go into that a little bit later, but I want you to look here to see that the experiential theological narrative in Acts that's, that's not telling us 
that the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, therefore we've got everything we need and we ought not to pursue the Spirit anymore. It's actually telling us something else. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Now this is like a blueprint of what the Holy Spirit is doing as, the, as he's being poured out on the earth. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's Jesus speaking, of course. Now, chapter 2 that you've already been in is all about Ju Jerusalem and Judea. Because these Jews from all over the empire are gathering for the Jewish feast of Pente Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out, and Peter, uh, uh, this is wonderful, because there's a lot of stuff that happened on the day of Pentecost that you not find anywhere in the Bible, tongue, you know, referred to explicitly, tongue speaking, looking they're drunk and all the rest, and yet Peter says, this is that, he stands up and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, Joel 2, but Joel doesn't talk about tongues, and he doesn't talk about people staggering around drunk, but he does talk about what's going on, and he interprets it as being a fulfillment of a Jewish prophecy to the Jewish people. So Jerusalem and Judea, the first part of chapter 1, verse 8, is being fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. But then when you come to chapter 8, and I think this is probably where you're at in your chronology of studies these uh, Sunday mornings, you get Samaria. Now, I can't go into all this, but you know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were seen um, as unclean, half-Jews, and religiously apostate. It's interesting. They had their own way of doing stuff over up in the North Kingdom. They were worshipping golden calves and they set up their own priesthood and their own religion. But it was semi-Jewish. You make all sorts of analogies there. But they receive the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls. In verse 14 of chapter 8, the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen on none of them. So they had believed, but he, he, he hadn't fallen on them, the Spirit. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And this is interesting. In chapter 2, nobody lays hands on anybody, and the Holy Spirit falls, and there's tongues and prophecy. Here... Uh, Peter and John lay hands on these Samaritan believers and there's no sign spoken of specifically that they spoke in tongues or prophesied. Now something happened. I think it probably was tongues prophecy because there's a magician guy called Simon. He gets all impressed by this and he wants to pay for this ability. So something happened that, that showed that the Holy Spirit had fallen on these guys. So this is Jerusalem in chapter 2, Samaria in chapter 8, go to chapter 10, you've got Cornelius's house. This, if you like, is the uttermost parts of the world because this is a Gentile, a full thoroughbred Gentile. And of course, he's the, um, the empowering force of, of the Roman Empire. If you look at chapter 10, you see what happens there. Verse 44, Peter still speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who had heard the word. Nobody lays hands here. The Holy Spirit just falls, just like in the day of Pentecost. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles. Unthinkable. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's tongues and prophecy. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now this is interesting because these guys 
in Cornelius and his household were baptized in the Spirit before they baptized in water. Not interesting. So we often in the church, we love formula and we love order and rules. But here's, we need to see, this is the Holy Spirit's record of how he does things in the early church. He, he mixes things up a little bit. There, sometimes there's tongues, sometimes there's prophecy, sometimes there's laying on the hands, sometimes there's not. The, the Spirit just sovereignly falls. And, um, and sometimes people who aren't baptized get the Holy Spirit before they're baptized in water. So let's not make rules, eh? Let's just, uh, there are principles, yeah, but let's pursue the Holy Spirit, pursue the power of God. But I want you to quickly turn to chapter 19, because this is probably where I was, and maybe where some of you are here today. And I, I was taught that the Holy Spirit was poured out of Pentecost, end of. So the Holy Spirit's here, don't be looking for him, he's here. There's a measure of truth in that. We don't need another Pentecost. But... Acts itself as theological narrative doesn't bear that out because if that all happened, done and dusted in chapter 2 in Jerusalem, Judea, why chapter 8? Why chapter 10? And this really scrambles your brain, chapter 19, because these guys don't fit into any of these categories. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Apart from the fact they're Gentiles, look at what happens here, verse 1. It happened when Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, who were they? Disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed or since you believed? Now, isn't that weird? It says they believed, doesn't it? It says they're disciples. But did you receive the Holy Spirit? Hey, come on, do you not know what the Bible teaches in your theology? You get the Holy Spirit when you're born again. That's correct. But what Paul's talking about here is something more, this empowerment of the Spirit. Not being born again but being empowered by the Spirit. Now, this is even more weird. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. These guys couldn't be Christians. What are they, Buddhists or something? You know, they couldn't be Christians. They've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They're baptized? Yep. So they said, into John's baptis baptism. That's John the Baptist. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So they obviously had repented at the preaching of John the Baptist. They'd been baptized into baptism of repentance. They believed on Jesus because that's who Jesus, that's the Jesus that John preached. They believed on Jesus. But when they heard this, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a bit weird. But it may be that they'd have, let's say, a half-baked faith in Jesus. They hadn't heard the rest of the story, right? They'd only heard what John had preached. And you might say, well, that means they weren't fully-fledged Christians. Okay, let's just say they weren't, all right? And they'd only been baptized by John. They'd only repented, but they hadn't completely come into faith in the Lord Jesus. So they believed completely in the Lord Jesus and, and converted. And then they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they heard this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The men were about 12 and all. If all they needed was to become fully-fledged Christians and then they got everything of the Holy Spirit that was necessary, why on earth did Paul then lay hands on them and they received something? Because they needed something. They needed the empowerment of God's Spirit in a special way. It's interesting there's 12 of them, isn't it? It's just like juxtaposing, paralleling the original apostles' disciples with this crowd that were left behind. 
They're somewhere in there. They're disciples that believed in Jesus. They got some water over them at some stage. But there's something just when Paul's looking at them, he's saying there's a deficiency in your kingdom experience. There's something that is not, this is not critical. And when God looks at you, he's not critiquing you. But when he does look at us, he sees what's lacking and he wants to provide it. So Paul says, have you ever been, <laughs> I feel like saying this in some of the places I preach, have you even heard of the Holy Spirit? And that was me. That was me. Something missing. You know, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus without possessing this power. This is how Christianity was meant to be. A.J. Gordon was a preacher years and years ago, over 100 years ago, in Boston. And he, he went on one occasion to the Chicago Fair, which was a world fair. People from all over the world came and brought inventions and all kinds of accoutrements and peculiar cultural things from, from uh, their nation. And in the distance, he, he spied what he thought was an Oriental man. That's just the way he describes it an oriental man who was pumping water at a furious rate. And he said the physical condition of the man was incredible, and the, the gallons of water he was pumping um, w w was awesome. And so he, he was intrigued, and he, he went nearer to see what this was all about. And the nearer he got, the more he realized this, this person wasn't real. It, it, it was made of wood. And actually, and this is his remark, it wasn't that the man was pumping the water, but the water was making the man go. It's a water feature. And so much of Christianity is all about pumping water, trying by our own steam to extend the kingdom of God, to build the church, often building their own empires at times. But it's not actually power of God in us, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. That's what real Christianity is. And we can have debates, and people have tried to trip me up on this. You know, you're talking about baptism of the Spirit, fullness of the Spirit, sealing of the Spirit. That's not, I mean, I do have my own belief on all that, but that's not really what the issue is. I like what Billy Graham says when he said, I don't care what you call it, just get it. Because we need it. And the it is a him. But it is his empowerment. It, it is his fire. It is his enablement. We cannot build the church without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the 12 were told, and the 120, sit on your hands and do nothing until the promise of the Father comes. Now that was after he said, go into all the world. But he's, So he's saying, go and then slow. Wait. And they waited. They just waited and prayed. Now, the good news is we don't need, I don't think we need to wait because Pentecost has been poured out and the Holy Spirit is, I believe, being poured out now constantly and the, 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 the goal of the, the Godhead is that on all flesh the Holy Spirit would be received. Yeah? But they weren't to do anything without the power of the Spirit. David Duplessis was one of the early leaders in the charismatic movement in America. And he moved to America and he um, had a discussion with a clergyman on one occasion who, who didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in the same way. And the clergyman asked him, um, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, so what is it that's different between you and us? And David Duplessis said, well, it's really, it's not that we believe 
differently concerning the Spirit. But let me illustrate it to you like this. He said, when we moved to Texas, my wife bought a refrigerator, a huge big, uh, what do you call those, chest fridges. And she said, he said she bought loads of steaks and filled the chest with all these steaks. And he said, I could take out a steak from the deep freeze and set it on the table and we could discuss its steerage, its part of the, uh, the, the beef it is, the part, part, part of the, the, the cattle it is. We, we could discuss all the nutrients that's in that piece of meat. But he says, if she throws it on the barbecue, he says, it's not very long until my kids are smelling it and crying out, Mom, Mom, what's cooking? What's cooking? And he says, it's not that we believe in a different Holy Spirit or even doctrinally differently regarding the Holy Spirit. It's just like this. He says, what you believe is on ice, what we believe is on fire. Now, maybe that's a bit cruel, but right across our land this morning and right across this world, people are saying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. But there's got to be demonstrations of power. And so, along with the bad teaching that I had, the next greatest obstacle to me, moving into the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is not theology anymore, but fear. And I want to kind of close on this. I had been inoculated against the Spirit by teaching and the fear of something that might be evil. And I want you to turn quickly to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I'm going to be preaching on Matthew's version of this tonight in Lurgan, so I'm not going to go into this in much detail. But the context of it is ask, seek, and knock, and, and, and you'll, you'll find. You know, it'll be open to you. If a son, verse 11, asks for bread of any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he, will he offer him a scorpion? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And what he's doing is he, he's saying, why would a father give something to harm his kids? I mean, you look at the analogies that's here. You ask for an egg and he gives you a scorpion. What kind of dad would do that? And, and this was a revelation to my heart that if I come to the Father asking for the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, he's not going to give me a demon. I'm not going to get Beelzebub if I'm asking for the Holy Spirit. But I had been so... Not my, my, my long-running issue in my life past, and still struggle a bit, is with fear. And God's continuing to deliver me from that. But I had a fear of something that would be wrong. And, you know, John Wimber, as it's often said, says faith is spelled R-A-S-K, and there has to come a time when you take that jump. And I remember listening, and I'll just share my, my story. I was, I'd been praying most of my life for to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I remember um, moving to Portadown, painting our spare room, and listening to Jackie Pullinger. Anybody know Jackie Pullinger? Missionary to Hong Kong. Um, wonderful woman. Listening to really grainy recordings from Hong Kong on the internet, interspersed by Chinese people prophesying and all sorts of weird stuff. And I'm just kind of listening to what she's, she's teaching on moving on to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And at the end, long story short, she asked the people to kneel down 
and you just receive what God wants to give. And I put the paintbrush down, knelt down beside the computer. But this is what she said. You have to step out in faith. She was talking specifically about the gift of tongues. But you have to step out in faith and believe God. Just the way Peter stepped out of the boat and put one foot in front of the other. God didn't walk in the water for Peter. He kept him above the water, but he had to put one foot in front of the other. And you've got to speak out in faith that God's going to give you this gift. God's going to come. And I did it, and that happened. And I've been doing that ever since, exercising that gift. And that gift then opened up a whole avenue to all, many of the gifts of the Spirit and healing and deliverance, not going into all that. But what I want you to see is some of you believe this stuff. I know you are. You probably wouldn't come here if you didn't believe this. But you haven't perhaps stepped into this. Maybe it's because of fear. Maybe it's because of inoculation by indoctrination. And maybe you need to take a risk here today. Maybe you're not completely there, up here or in here. But there has to come a time when you say, if this is happening and God's word says it is in the world, and the greatest outpouring of the Spirit, I believe, is still to come in the end time harvest that God's going to bring before Jesus returns, I want to be part of it. And I've lost my reputation on this. I've lost friends over this. But it's worth it. It's worth it. I could say more. I'm not going to go on. I'm going to finish now because I, I, let's just stand. And you know, I've spent, I spent my whole life repenting. But since these revelations have come, I've spent a lot of time <coughs> repenting and apologizing and and I remember having a revelation from Job chapter 42. You remember after all he experienced in the whirlwind and everything. And he loses so much. And then God comes to him and reveals himself to him in the whirlwind. Do you remember what he says? Listen to this. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I was reading this from the Good News Bible. This is what it says. In the past, I knew only what others had told me. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. So I am ashamed of all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. Wow. And basically, I had received second-hand knowledge rather than first-hand experience. And maybe you need to repent of, of things you believe in the past. You mightn't believe them now, but you might have assented to them previously. You might have made confessions by things you said or even criticisms of people that were into all this stuff. You might need to actually renounce that. That could be a blockage. Or maybe it's just fear, fear of losing control. I know many people, and they're a, they've been controlled in their life, and so they take control in a wrong way, not self-control under the Spirit, but a fleshly control and manipulation, and they, they're afraid of the Holy Spirit, what he might do in case they're out of control. Well, relax. He gives self-control, and he doesn't control the influences, really. And he's that good, good father. You don't need to be afraid. So maybe you need to repent and maybe you need to say, Lord, I want everything you've got. Everything that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, I want. And even though my head hasn't got it yet, my heart wants it. Now I'm going to pray for you now and I want you to open your heart in whatever way you feel comfortable to receive. And we're going to tell you, see if you've been 
filled with the Spirit or something's happened or baptized with the Spirit, whatever terminology you want to use before, there's more. God gives the Spirit without measure. That means there is always more, as we sang earlier. There must be more than this. There is. And if you want it, you can get it if you pursue God with your heart. So let's just come in an attitude of reception. And I'm going to pray for you. And I don't even need to pray for you, essentially. But that's what I'm going to do. You reach out and receive and just take it by faith. Just take it by faith. There's no hurdles to jump. Jesus jumped all the hurdles. There's no, I don't even believe there needs to be waiting. The Spirit is here. He is nearer than your very words. Just reach out by faith and say, Lord, I want you to come and fill me, overflow me, and give me the gifts that you want me to have. Then step out in faith and expect and look. Lord, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that Jesus Christ is glorified and he's exalted and seated at your right hand in heaven, Father. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is here now, poured out. And Lord, I pray for a demonstrative sense of the Holy Spirit in this place. And we just say together, come Holy Spirit. Just say that. Come Holy Spirit. Maybe put it like this on a personal level, because if we want to see corporate community change and revival, there's got to be individual revival and change. What about come to me, Holy Spirit? Come to me, Holy Spirit. Come to me, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you'll come and you'll make yourself real to people, that you'll give gifts, that you'll empower, you'll clothe with power and enablement right now. I pray that you'll heal people right now, that you'll deliver people right now, that you'll come and touch you. Do what you want to do. You're free, Lord. The Spirit is the Lord. You're free to do what you want to do in this place right now. Now, if you sense the Holy Spirit coming on you right now, I would encourage you to come for prayer even while we're singing at the end or while people are having a cup of tea. If you sense the Holy Spirit resting on you, especially those who feel that, I want you to, you, you need to be first in line. You need to come now. If you sense God has given you a word for healing or you need to be set free of something, come on out for prayer and we'll pray with you. Mm-hmm. But the Lord is here and you will see and you will hear something today. If you have the faith, God bless you.